when making music using a computer, you can press a button and have every single thing that you just played snap to a grid and be perfectly in time. This is called quantizing, and while some people say it can kind of drain the music of its humanity, it can also make it very precise, which can be useful in certain circumstances. That's just my take, though. Let's ask the non-quantized horns what they think. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about quantized music, non-quantized music, and music that deftly mixes the two. We've got a very special episode planned for you all, a trip in the Wayback Machine of Strong Songs. So turn up the volume, grab a comfortable place to sit, and enjoy the show. This episode that you're listening to marks the first anniversary of Strong Songs, a little idea I had a little over a year ago to make a podcast about music and see if people liked it. It has been such a cool year. So much has happened since I launched this show, and it's really, it's been great, and you all are a big part of that. In honor of this show's first anniversary, I'm going to do something a little bit different on this episode. It's going to be a special episode, and I'll explain how that will work in a moment, but first, a few things up front. First of all, I am going to be taking December off, so there will be no new episodes of Strong Songs in December. The next episode of the show will be on January 8th, and that will begin what I'm kind of calling Year 2 of Strong Songs. We're looking back at Year 1 on this episode, and on January 8th, we'll begin Year 2. That means that everybody who supports the show on Patreon will not be paying anything for the month of December, because I'm taking the month off, and that also means I think this is a great time to sign up to support the show if you've been thinking about it. I've mentioned this on a lot of episodes, Strong Songs is an entirely listener-supported show. There are no ads. I don't have any sponsors, nothing like that. I don't want to sell this show to anybody. I just want to keep making it for all of you. And many of you have already signed up to become patrons of the show over on Patreon, which is really awesome and makes it a lot easier for me to spend as much time as I want to on this show. So you can find out more about that over at patreon.com slash strong songs. And as of this episode, I'm actually adding a new lower tier, the eighth note tier for backers who just want to kind of help out a little bit, which would be really cool if you want to do that. This has been a pretty widely requested thing. So I'm adding that to the Patreon campaign for this show. Thank you so much to everyone who has ever been a patron of Strong Songs. If you are a current patron, if you were a patron at some point, I just, I really appreciate it. And it is wild to think that people would financially support me making this show. I love doing this more than anything. And it really, it means the world to me that you all support the show. So it's the end of the year. Head over there if you want to know more about that. And you won't even have to pay anything until the start of 2020. One of my favorite things about making Strong Songs has been hearing from you all. I've gotten hundreds of emails and I reply to almost every email that I get unless they're like from marketing people or something. But any any listener who writes me with a musical question or a Q&A question or just a music suggestion, I try to write back to everybody. And it's just so cool to hear from so many people who get so excited about music and want to talk about the songs that I talked about. It's a big part of the joy that I get out of doing this show. I am always looking for more listener questions for future Q&A episodes. I'll definitely be doing more Q&A episodes in year 
too. So by all means, if you have feedback, questions, you just want to geek out about some musical thing over the course of December or whenever, uh, feel free to reach out. My email is strongsongspodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Kirk, K-I-R-K, Hamilton. And actually, I mentioned this last episode, but a bunch of you hit me up on Instagram as well, which I've been using recently and having a good time with. So I'm there as well at Kirk underscore Hamilton. So you may have noticed that this episode mentions 20 songs, which may have given you an inkling of how this episode is going to work. That's because I am looking back at the first year of Strong Songs and at the 20 primary songs that I covered in individual episodes, and I want to go through all of them and kind of highlight my favorite single thing or one musical aspect of the song that I really remember. One element of each song that I can just hit briefly in a whirlwind tour of all of the songs that we talked about this year. It's my hope in making Strong Songs that you could really listen to any episode in any order order for, you know, a song that you like, and you don't have to have listened to the other ones to get something out of it. They're each sort of meant to stand alone, and they're each meant to work, you know, five years in the future, ten years in the future, or whatever. I know that a lot of people have discovered the show over the course of this first year, and I'm guessing that a fair number of you haven't listened to every single episode. So I'm hoping that during this downtime in December, some of you will go back and find the episodes you haven't listened to, go listen to them, maybe even take an episode that you like that you listen to and listen to it again, because believe me, there's there's a lot in there, and I listen to these songs so many times and every time I listen to them I hear something new. So I want this episode to serve as a kind of a roadmap for you to guide you toward any episodes you may have missed and also just to take you back to the ones that you already listened to and just kind of highlight some cool moments from each of those episodes and just revisit each of these fantastically strong songs. I want to be clear up front though, this is not a clip show, this isn't just excerpts from those episodes. This is me talking now, you know, in November of 2019. It's just we're going to be looking back at each of those 20 songs. One last thing, I've made a new playlist to accompany this episode. It is called Strong Songs Year One. As you can probably guess, it's the 20 songs from this episode. You can find it on Apple Music or Spotify, and I've put links in the show notes to both. I really recommend just putting on some headphones and going on a walk and listening to the entire playlist in order. Really focus on the music and treat it as like the opposite of a final exam. It's not a test or anything. It's just a chance to really kind of luxuriate in all the things that you're hearing in these songs, these songs that we've taken apart and talked about over the months. And I think it'll be a pretty cool experience. I'm definitely looking forward to doing it myself. And I hope some of you out there do as well. Without further ado, one year, 20 songs, a look back on the first year of Strong Songs. Song 1, Toto's Africa. Ah, yes, the one that started it all, Toto's Africa, was the first song that I ever broke down on Strong Songs. In fact, this podcast was not even called Strong Songs when I recorded the episode about this song. I kept that episode pretty short. I go back and forth on whether it would have been better if it had been longer, like more recent episodes. Not really sure. Definitely a cool song, though. Hear the drums echoing tonight And she hears only whispers of some quiet conversation This episode covered a lot of ground in those 20 minutes. It talked about the groove, it talked about the vocals in particular, those harmonies on the chorus, how there's kind of no one melody that everybody sings on the chorus. But my favorite thing that I noticed when I was working on this episode that I managed to tease out in it was how hip that keyboard solo is. There's 
There's so much good stuff in this song. Obviously, the chorus is incredible, but that solo kind of underlines the level of musicality in Toto. And something that I then learned going forward, you know, into the year was how many Toto musicians would wind up in the rhythm section on other albums. A lot of those guys were just great players. And I think that musicality comes through in this song and is a big part of what makes it so great. Song 2, Paul Simon's You Can Call Me Out. This was a fun second song to do on the show. It is probably the best known song off of Paul Simon's Graceland, an album that I only came to appreciate a little bit later in life, but has gone on to become one of my favorite albums ever. Kind of one of those perfect albums that I I struggle to find a single flaw with. I'm sure I could if I really put my mind to it, but man, I can just listen to this whole album from start to finish every time that I put it on. Talked about a lot of different things on this episode, the horn parts, those groovy rhythms, the kind of harmonic simplicity, but the complex layering of the song. But the one thing that I want to highlight on this episode, looking back on it, is of course the bass solo that happens near the end. That solo, played by South African bassist Pakiti Kamalo, is probably the coolest thing in the song. I don't know, there's a lot of cool things in the song. But what is cool about that solo is something I pointed out on the show that freaked a lot of people out. I heard from a lot of people after this episode. It made me really happy that people hadn't really realized this, but that the second half of the bass solo is the first half of the bass solo played in reverse. So it's not actually a complete bass solo, it's just the first half, and then they reverse the tape, which you can hear really well when you listen to it knowing that going in. a great song off of a great album. I've actually been listening to The Rhythm of the Saints, which was the 1990 follow-up album that Simon recorded. Man, that's a really cool album, too. It, it's different than Graceland, but geez, there's some, great, there's some great stuff on there. So if you want more Paul Simon and you like that album, I also recommend Rhythm of the Saints. Song 3, Beyonce's Single Ladies. Single Ladies was a fun song to talk about, partly because it's just a really good song, and partly because it's a little bit different than the first two songs in terms of the way that it approaches harmony, the way that it approaches melody, the groove. is The whole thing is just like pretty unusual and much more modern than the more standard instrumentation of the first two songs that I had talked about on the show. The thing that I really want to highlight and the thing that I think about when I think about this song is that introduction, actually, the thing that I already played. The counting on that introduction is so hip and so unusual. This is something that I had always kind of been obsessed with about this song and really kind of drilled into as I was making the episode and figuring out how to count that intro and hopefully helping some of you also be able to count the intro, I think kind of unlocks something about the unique flavor of this groove. It's just that disorienting thing where it starts on three, like this. Three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two. Club, club, just club, club. 
what a cool song. So much stuff going on. That The wild harmonies on this song are still so cool. Those like augmented chords and kind of really weird angular shoulder raised things. Um, Single Ladies is a great tune and was great fun to pick apart on the show. Song four, Stevie Wonder's I Wish. If ever there was a tune to talk about good horn arranging, it was this one, so it was really cool to get to highlight this killer horn section. There's a lot to talk about actually on this episode. The groove, all those cool ARP synth parts, the walking bass line, that live version where they change up the way they do the horns. And I happen to know this is one of the least listened to episodes that I did in the last year. So some of you out there, you listened to the Bohemian Rhapsody one, but you didn't listen to Stevie Wonder. And I'm telling you, you should listen to the Stevie Wonder episode because Stevie Wonder was really good. I mean, Queen is really good too. Don't worry, we'll get there. But uh, Stevie Wonder, also very good. Definitely worth listening to this episode, which was a lot of fun to do. Song 5, Michael Jackson's Thriller. So you know, my feelings about the songs that I make episodes about change over time. That's, of course, totally natural. I listen to these songs a whole bunch of times and make the episode, and then I feel differently about the song. That's true also of Michael Jackson's Thriller, but for a different reason. Now, 2019 was also the year that HBO released the documentary Leaving Neverland. Uh, That was a few months after I made this episode, and it dealt with some stuff about Michael Jackson that I kind of knew about, you know, that everybody sort of knew about, but hadn't really reckoned with in the way that I think, at least I personally felt like I needed to. I watched the entire documentary. It was four hours long. It was really hard to watch. I'm very glad I watched it, partly because Michael Jackson's music is so undeniable it's such good music that in order for some of the things that are also true about him, or at least that I believe to be true about him, to sort of exist alongside that mighty of a cultural and musical imprint, it kind of needed a four-hour documentary. So I just want to say, for the record, I believe Wade Robson and James Safechuck. I think that if you care and you're kind of curious about that documentary, that it's worth taking the four hours to watch it. I also totally understand if you don't want to watch it, if you don't want to deal with it, I get that some people just don't want to think about that stuff and celebrate Michael Jackson's music. His music is great, and I totally understand that. Just speaking personally, I don't really like listening to him sing anymore. Um, You know, my view of his music has changed kind of inalterably. I know that every musician I know has a different read on this. A lot of people still play in cover bands where they play his music. His music is just so undeniable that it's complicated and everybody has their own take. I certainly don't want to suggest this is at all cut and dried. I just wanted to at least mention it since we are looking back on the year that was. That episode is unaltered. It still celebrates how awesome Thriller is. Thriller is an awesome song, and you can totally go listen to it. I recommend it. So go check that out. Let's keep going. Song six, ABBA's Dancing Queen. Ooh, see that girl. Watch that scene. 
Oh man, this song. So speaking of songs that I feel differently about now than I did before I made a Strong Songs episode about them, Dancing Queen is a song that completely transformed in my estimation from when I started making the episode to when I finished making the episode. In fact, ABBA has become even more just one of my favorite bands in this last year. I've been listening to them a lot because they're just such a good band. Their music was just fantastic. And this song was definitely one of their strongest songs. I think that the thing that I remember about this song, the thing I want to highlight, is the bittersweetness of it, which is encapsulated by a few things. And I got into it in the episode, partly the way that that having the time of your life line is sung over a minor chord. And it's like, the song is this beautiful, lush major seventh, but then they hit this minor chord and it's like having the time of your life. And then the perspective shifts. And I think that was, that was kind of the key to unlocking this song is the way that it goes from you are the dancing queen to see that girl, watch that scene. And you go from being the dancing queen to being an observer of her. You've gone from being on the dance floor to watching the dance floor. And I think that gives this song its certain beautiful, bittersweet magic. Song 7, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? It was a fair question whether this was real life or fantasy, given that this song is would sort of be a fantasy for anybody who wants to pick apart complicated, exciting, and interesting music. Man, where to even begin with this one? This song was so fun to dig into. This was the most ambitious episode that I'd ever done. It's also one of the most popular episodes of this show. Really fun one. Usually one I point people to when they want to know what Strong Songs is all about. I had a great time with it. I covered so much ground. It's hard to pick any one thing to focus on. But actually, one of my favorite things that I noticed and kind of articulated while making this episode was strategic Brian May deployment, which is the way that Queen would use Brian May, their guitarist, um, in this kind of very sparing and careful way that always made it so that when Brian May came in, it achieved maximum impact. In part, I like doing this because it let me use examples from other Queen songs, but it's really remarkable how much more impact May's guitar playing has because they don't use him all the time. It's a really cool insight into how Queen works. There was, of course, so much more in this episode. If, for some reason, you haven't listened to this one, I do recommend it. It was quite a lot of fun to put together. It goes to a whole bunch of cool places, mostly guided by this really cool song. It was a fun one, and I'm excited to talk about Queen again on the show at some point. I see a little silhouette of a man. Scaramouche, Scaramouche, will you do the bandango? Thunderbolt and lightning, very, very frightening me. Song 8, Let It Go from Frozen. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just, I, I need to say that I'm having a lot of fun doing these booming voice intros. Uh, turns out speaking in a big booming voice with reverb is a lot of fun. Let it go, let it go, can't hold it back anymore. Let it go, let it go, 
This was a fun song to talk about for a lot of reasons. I've liked this song for a long time and have always kind of found an unusual amount of musicality in it. But really, it's just cool that there's this power ballad in the middle of a Disney movie. As usual, this episode covered a lot of ground. I really like the bridge to this song with those crazy Mixolydian lines and the, the really kind of wild mallet parts. But the thing I want to highlight is really just a little single instrumental part. It happens right at the end as sort of the climax of the song as it builds up for Adina Menzel to really take it away in that final refrain. And the bass player just does that neck pump and it kills me every time. It's the funniest thing. And I loved getting to point it out to listeners. cracks me up still cracks me up every time i hear it it rocks so hard and i just love the bass player whoever it was sitting back there in the studio looks at the conductor like should i do it the conductor's like yeah and then just mm, pumps that business song nine moaning by art blakey and the jazz a messengers Now my musical background is in jazz, I'm a jazz saxophonist, went to school for jazz, it's been my main and favorite kind of music for my whole life, though this is actually the only straight ahead jazz tune that I have done on Strong Songs, yet anyways. Don't worry, those of you who said that you like this episode and you want to do more jazz, there will definitely be more jazz in year two. That is despite the fact that this episode actually I think is the least listened to episode, still plenty of people listen to it, but it is, you know, not as many people go in for the hard bop 1950s jazz as maybe go in for the more well-known rock and pop tunes. That is in no way a judgment on any of you. Jazz is kind of harder to listen to than a lot of other kinds of music. This episode was aimed at alleviating that. It was sort of an introduction to how to listen to jazz, to what's going on in a given jazz tune. It's also just a killer tune, man. Just swinging performances, really great stuff from Lee Morgan, Benny Golson, Bobby Timmons, the whole gang. Um, Really fun to kind of break this down and hopefully help some people hear a little more what's going on in a jazz tune. It was particularly fun to go deep into Lee Morgan's trumpet solo. If you remember, he was 19 when he recorded this album, which is just totally ridiculous how good he was even then. And uh, there was a lot there. One of the things that I heard from a lot of people about, I remember there was some discussion over this quote that he plays. And I think the consensus from listeners, and I I addressed this on later episodes, was that that was probably Turkey in the Straw, the song that he was quoting, though it's not, you know, totally rock solid, obviously, because we can't ask him. But that was a fun sort of joint mystery that uh, listeners helped me try to solve over the months after airing this episode. The moment I want to highlight, though, is actually the handoff between Lee Morgan and tenor saxophonist Benny Golson. I love this handoff. It's like an iconic thing in jazz. A lot of people will do this. It's a little quote that you'll hear. Hopefully, if somebody who listened to this episode then heard a jazz player do it, they were like, ah, I know where that comes from. That comes from Mona. Such a great opening tune from such a great jazz album that I hope got a few more people to listen to a little bit more jazz. (laughs) 
Song 10, Mr. Blue Sky by the Electric Light Orchestra. Mr. Blue Sky, please tell us why you had to hide away for so long. Why did we go wrong? Analyzing this song on the show gave me such a better appreciation for Jeff Lynne and ELO's sort of Beatles-influenced approach to carrying on a lot of the musical ideas that the Beatles came up with. And it just, it's such a fun and joyful song that it was impossible not to just get carried away on the sort of tide of joy that this entire song rides along on. Certainly one of the most fun things about this episode was the fire extinguisher. There was a lot of talk of the fire extinguisher that they clang on during this song that they apparently still pull out on stage and clang on. A whole bunch of you wrote in to tell me about seeing them live and how they still got the fire extinguisher out. I saw videos of the fire extinguisher. I did a test with my friend Sam where he brought in a bunch of fire extinguishers and we hit them. Those are all on Q&A episodes and stuff. But that was, of course, very, very fun. There was a lot of other stuff on this episode. I mean, like this song, it had a whole lot going on. Um, But another thing that I liked pointing out to some people was the fact that the vocoder voice that sings Mr. Blue Sky throughout the recording, at the very end, what it says is not, in fact, Mr. Blue Sky. It says, please turn me over because that's the end of the side of the record and you need to turn the record over. Song 11, Satisfied from Hamilton. I remember that night, I just might regret that night for the rest of my days. I remember those soldier boys stripping head over themselves to win our praise. I remember that dream like candlelight, like a dream that you can't quite place. But Alexander, I'll never forget the first time I saw your face. Well, this episode was a long time coming and a very fun one to do. Obviously, one of my favorite musicals ever. One of the most musically rich musicals I can think of. Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton, the tribute to the first Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton, is such a good musical. I trust that a lot of you went and listened to it if you hadn't already heard it. Um, It's also very fun to see on stage. And man, there's a lot of cool musical stuff happening both on the surface of this musical and underneath the surface as I discovered the kind of deeper I went into this show. Um, More so than most episodes of Strong Songs, I found that I was so excited to share the little connections that I discovered while I was working on it. It just, it really felt like the deeper I went, the more I found, and that was kind of this incredible experience. Obviously, um, picking out Angelica's theme and explaining the motifs of Hamilton and how they all kind of fit together, the many, many ways that Satisfied plays with Angelica's motif was really cool. But I think my favorite single thing on this episode was discovering that the chord progression for Satisfied, which remember, is like Angelica Schuyler's big song is actually the same chord progression as my shot, which is Alexander Hamilton's defining shot. So this song that's kind of about how she'll always love Alexander Hamilton actually happens over the same chord progression as Alexander's defining song. What a cool way to link those two characters. It's very subtle. It's very clever. It's very Lin-Manuel Miranda. Song 12, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John.
This episode was actually a twofer. This was shortly after I saw the very fun movie Rocket Man, the story of Elton John's life, and I focused on two Elton John songs, both Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and Tiny Dancer, which Tiny Dancer I would say is maybe just as well known, if not maybe a little bit better known than Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, but I felt like I had so much to say about Elton and about his writing style that I decided to tackle two songs at once. Now the big thing about Elton John and about these two songs, it came down to shapes actually, and that to me was the most interesting thing about this episode was the concept of Tiny Dancer as a straight line. It's just this straight line forward, basically to the chorus. It takes a long time to get to the chorus, like comically long, and then it just repeats the line again. While Goodbye Yellow Brick Road is much more of a spiral. And to me, that spiral is so interesting. That was the thing that really stuck with me about making this episode. Just the way that it feels like a twisting, winding road, that he moves through half the circle of fourths, you know, through the chord progression. It's this very loping, um, chord progression that just covers a lot of ground and it never quite resolves you know eventually of course the phrase resolves but if you listen to it it just it kind of just keeps going and going and just spilling over onto itself It's a cool example of how a chord progression kind of defines the journey that you're going to go on in the song because the chords are kind of the locations and depending on how you arrange them that's kind of the journey that you're taking the listener on because the melody moves through the chords and however you arrange the chords those are kind of the points on the map that you're then going to move through and I think this song is a really cool journey because it it just keeps going and going and going it only really gets there at the very end when you decide I suppose to leave the yellow brick road behind. Song 13, Tightrope by Janelle Monet. Some people talk about you like they know all about you. When you get down, they doubt you. And when you dip it on the scene, yeah, they talking about it. Because they can't tip on the scene, what you talk about it. So much here to talk about. One of my favorite tracks from one of my favorite albums from one of my favorite artists. It was cool to get into Janelle Monet, talk about the groove, talk about that funky bass plan, talk about big boys rapping. There was a lot of ground to cover. Man, we even got some ukulele in there. I learned the chords from the song on ukulele. That was fun. But I think that the thing that sticks with me about this episode was this was the episode where I first kind of articulated the idea of thump, pop, and sizzle, which of course I now repeat on every episode because that is the trademarked Strong Songs way of breaking down a groove. Now the concept of course is that the thump is like the kick drum. There's some kind of low thumpy sound in every groove. Every groove has a pop. It's usually a snare drum but it can be anything. It can be hand claps. It can be all kinds of things like a pop higher pitched percussive sound that bounces off the thump. And then there's a sizzle which could be a hi-hat, some kind of cymbal, some kind of shaker, something to kind of unite the sound in between the thump and the pop. In between them you get a groove. Thump plus pop plus sizzle equals groove. Now tightrope was a cool one to introduce that concept because 
because it has a thump and a pop and a sizzle, but they're not, you know, the usual instruments. The thump is more of a like mallet bass drum. The pop is this kind of clack like sticks hitting the side of a drum. The sizzle is a tambourine. They play with a couple other sounds throughout there, but it was a good way to demonstrate that really all you need is some element of thump and pop and sizzle. It doesn't have to be a drum set. You can still have a groove, but those three elements typically are always present. So it was fun to recreate the groove on my own. I actually think I came pretty close to it and uh, make that thump and pop and sizzle, but those distinct sounds that Janelle Monae used on Tightrope. It was actually also fun to add the bass part to that groove. And the bass part on this tune is kind of hard. I was very proud of myself for learning it because it was a fun one to learn to kind of appreciate just how good the bass playing on this track is. there was a lot of other stuff to get into. This tune is harmonically hip to an unexpected degree. There's a lot of cool parts layered in there and just a bunch going on. This was a really fun one to break down. Come on. Come on. I on alligators and little rattlesnakers, but I'm another flavor, something like a terminator. Ain't no equivocating. I fight for what I believe. Are you talking about Just, just, just talking about it. Some calling me a sinner. Song 14, Hearts Barracuda. Yeah, this one rocked. It was super fun to look at Hearts Barracuda, one of the most kind of weirdly overlooked hard rock songs in terms of lists of the best rock songs, and one that really let me get deep into guitar tone, which was something I hadn't talked about a whole ton on this show, partly because, you know, I'm a saxophonist first, guitar player second, and not an expert in guitar tone, but also just because the opportunity hadn't come up. Guitar tone is a very fun thing to talk about, and Roger Fisher's guitar sound on this track, man, is really good. This episode definitely gave me a new appreciation for Roger Fisher as a guitarist, and for the work that he did on this track. Actually, this episode inspired me to buy a new guitar. While I was working on it, I kept noting how he was playing on a Fender Stratocaster, which gives you a certain kind of a tone, and also because it has a tremolo bar, aka a whammy bar, it lets you do something with the harmonic at the end of that riff, where you can hit the harmonic and then kind of jimmy the whammy bar and get this really distinct kind of rockin' sound. I was unable to get that at the time of making this episode, but now that I got a Fender Stratocaster, I can play the riff as it was meant to be played. Love that whammy bar. So thanks, Hart, and thanks one slightly later song for inspiring me to get a guitar I should have gotten a long time ago. Love it and love this song. Song 15, Radiohead's Paranoid Android. What's 
so much in this song to talk about. Man, this was a really cool one to learn. A song that I always kind of knew and had listened to a lot, but geez, I mean, I know I say this about every song on this show, but I really got a new appreciation for it after learning all the parts. That's actually the thing I want to highlight. There were a bunch of cool things about this episode. I think the sense of descent was something that I hadn't really fully internalized. The way this song just moves down and down and down into the deep depths of this black lake and just sort of crushes under the pressure at the end. It's a much darker song, just lyrically and also musically than I'd even realized. But the thing that I really like learning were actually the guitar parts, specifically the acoustic guitar part that Tom York plays at the beginning. I'm no great shakes as a guitarist. It took me a while to work out this line and get it to where I could play it for the episode. What I like about it is what I like about a lot of creative guitar parts is that it is very guitar-y. It uses the open strings of the guitar in a lot of creative ways, and it lets it move through a few kind of unusual harmonies while still leaving a lot of ringing notes. I think that guitar part stands in for the general musical sophistication of this song and the way that Radiohead is such a musically sophisticated band in general. One thing I think I didn't spend enough time on is Tom York's melodies and his vocals, but man, the more I practice singing along with him and just really study the melodies that he would write and sing, that guy is operating on a melodic level that not very many musicians in the sort of pop rock sphere are. He is just amazing. Song 16, Madonna's Like a Prayer. Definitely one of my favorite Madonna songs. Like a Prayer was such a good example of contrast and the drama you can get from contrast, from that mysterious verse to those triumphant choruses, the way the chords change, the way that the whole song's vibe changes. This was a really fun one to talk about, and actually, it sealed the deal on me getting a Stratocaster, because when I heard the guitar tone on that chorus, I was like, I need a guitar that sounds like this. I would say that the most fun parts to pick out on this episode were definitely the bass parts. Um, There's just a lot of really cool bass going on. And actually, Guy Pratt, who played bass on some of the parts of this song, he listened to the episode because a listener pointed him toward it on Twitter, which is always a little bit of a terrifying experience when someone who was actually in the studio on one of the tracks I talked about listened to the episode. But he was really complimentary. It was cool. And he actually gave me a couple notes on who played what, since it can always be a little tricky with crediting on some of these older albums when multiple people played multiple instruments on the same track. So he didn't play every bass part on this track, but he did play some of them, and I really loved getting into those bass parts, in particular the one on the chorus that just is this little jumping bean, kind of bouncing around underneath the melody, and that more steadfast guitar riff. Song 17, Think by Aretha Franklin. Think, 
What more can I even say about Aretha Franklin? What more can I say about Think, one of my favorite songs ever? Not just favorite Aretha Franklin songs, not favorite soul songs, just favorite songs. I love Think. It was very fun to talk about both the original recording and the later 1980 Blues Brothers recording that she did. And I think that was my favorite thing about talking about this song was that Blues Brothers version has that second key change. This song has such a great key change, that build section where she sings freedom. I mean, it rocks enough the first time she does it. Then, on the Blues Brothers version, she does it a second time, and they change keys again. (laughs) Ah, It rocks every time I listen to it, just like this song rocks every time I listen to it. Song 18, Seals, Kiss from a Rose. one of those songs that everyone knows is a classic, but people don't always kind of categorize it as a classic, despite the fact that it's very deserving. This was a fun one to break apart, partly because the vocals do that very cool contrapuntal thing where Seal kind of recorded multiple takes and multiple vocal tracks that then weave in and out of one another. It was fun to break those down, illustrate them for you all. It was also fun to recreate them, to break out my saxophones and woodwinds and recreate them in a nice little chamber ensemble setting. My favorite single moment from this song, though, occurs near the end, and it's when things come way down, and instead of kind of belting out baby like he does earlier, he just lets it sit, and there's this beautiful, like, little heartbeat from the kick drum, and then a cluster chord from the piano and the strings. It sounds so cool, and it was very fun to tease that out and highlight it. My power, my pleasure, my pain. Song 19, Making Christmas from the Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh man, this was a very fun one. So much to get into, so much music to unpack in this song. Of course, Danny Elfman, one of my favorite composers, really fun guy to talk about, both to talk about his singing, his singing as he was the front man for Oingo Boingo, his singing as he plays Jack Skellington in The Nightmare Before Christmas, and to get into some of the cool orchestration and instrumentation tricks that he uses. In fact, just to mention a name that didn't make it into the episode, but I really should have included, Steve Bartek is an orchestrator for Danny Elfman. He was also a guitar player in Oingo Boingo. He's a big part of Elfman's sound. And, you know, the orchestrations are such a big part of how cool Elfman's musical scores sound. So Steve Bartek, definitely worth mentioning with regards to Danny Elfman's music. So, of course, my favorite little detail from this episode was figuring out the motif behind that making Christmas motif. You know the one, making Christmas. 
So those four notes um, can be traced back to a lot of different sources. This was actually a rare instance of me updating an episode after it went live. Really shortly after it went up, a whole bunch of people wrote to tell me about something called the Dies Irae. Now, the Dies Irae is a Gregorian death chant that has been used in all kinds of movies and was almost certainly one of the influences for the motif behind Making Christmas, which also, if you remember from the episode, doubles as the motif for Jack Skellington himself. Jack's Lament is built around kind of the same notes as the Dies Irae. Of course, the likelihood of a DSE Ray influence does not preclude the other parallel that I find, at least, with the Making Christmas motif, and that is, if you take those four notes, put them in a slightly different rhythm, and speed them up, it starts here, and it ends here. Because to me, anyways, Making Christmas also shares the same four-note motif as the Carol of the Bells. Just one more cool little thing in a piece of music that is full to bursting with them. Song 20, Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You. of no better song to wrap up the first year of Strong Songs than Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You. Fun fact, I had to go through and edit out a bunch of times. I kept using words like greatest and most incredible and all these superlatives because I kept talking about how this is one of the greatest songs by one of the greatest songwriters. But the thing is, it's true. Dolly Parton is one of the greatest songwriters and this is one of the greatest songs. The standout thing for me in the Dolly Parton version of this was getting into that thing that Dolly can do where she rides the line between speaking and singing and how it kind of brings you in in this certain way. It's so intimate and then she just seamlessly can switch between speaking to you and telling you a story and singing to you and singing you a story. That effortless shift she can do is perfectly exemplified by the end of that spoken final verse of the song where she goes from talking to you to singing and it's like it didn't even happen at all. And I wish you joy and happiness. But above all of this, I wish you love. And I it was also so fun to talk about Whitney Houston's 1992 version of this song because it's such a clinic in amazing vocal technique. And getting even more into the nitty gritty with her singing was just really rewarding for me to listen to how well she sits in her mix and all of the different types of control that she exhibits. And my favorite thing from the Whitney Houston performance, it's not that epic key change, though the key change is amazing. It's not that beautiful head voice note that she hits, you know, at the kind of climax of the song. It's actually the thing she does at the very, very end. And I think that that's because so many of the times that I heard this song, it was on the radio and the radio wouldn't play the entire song. They'd play most of it. She would resolve the note, you know, onto that final chord and the song basically feels finished. And I think the DJs would just move on to the next song because that's kind of a logical place to do it. But if you really sit down and listen to the track as it was recorded, you get to hear one last vocal trick from her. It's this beautiful ascension as she just slides up through two more notes. It's beautiful and it was very fun to just kind of listen to that internalize it and share it with everybody.
If there's going to be a final note that we analyze on Strong Songs in the year 2019, let it be that note. And that'll do it for the first year of Strong Songs. Those were the 20 main songs that I focused on, though, of course, there were also some great Q&A episodes. Thank you, everybody who sent in questions that I answered, hopefully satisfactorily to all of you. There were some bonus episodes. I interviewed my former high school band director. I even did an episode of animated theme songs. So there's a whole bunch of stuff to go back through over the course of December while I'm taking a break and catch up on all the things that I recorded over the past year. Thank you so much to all of you. Thank you, everyone who's listened Everyone who's written in, sent me feedback, recommended music to me. I just, I appreciate you all so much. You're the reason I'm making the show. And it's been so, so, so cool to hear from you all. In particular, I want to shout out to everyone who has written to me that they've started playing an old instrument or even started learning a new instrument because of this show. I can't tell you what that means to me. It's so cool. Good luck to you. Practice with a metronome. Be patient with yourself and try to play every day. More extra special thanks to everyone who backs or has ever backed the show on Patreon. You all are the reason that I'm able to do this. If you want to support me making this show in year two, please head over to patreon.com slash strong songs. Think about joining up. There's now an eighth note tier. So hey, there's all kinds of options and I appreciate everybody's support more than I can say. This downtime is also a good opportunity to spread the word. You could leave me a review anywhere that you listen to the show. Those reviews really help me. Also, if you're visiting friends and family over the holidays, maybe tell them about this cool music podcast called Strong Songs that you just discovered and think they'd like. I want to leave you with the fantastic outro soloists that I recorded over the past few months. I'm definitely going to have many more next year, but I wanted to let you hear a little bit from all of them, starting with BJ Chord on the trumpet. And Galen Clark on the keys. Reich on the accordion. Oh, yeah. Dan Nervo on the guitar. Sam Howard on electric bass. on alto sax. podcast about movies. This isn't a podcast about books. This isn't about politics or celebrity trends or how to get the hottest looks. This is a podcast about the notes in the air and the notes on the page. The sounds and the songs we all leave on the stage. This is Strong Songs, a podcast about music. Thanks for listening. See you in the new year.